podcast the crash course podcast as always i'm john i'm matt i'm steve um john went first really quick it's crazy as insanity starts to build and i get closer to my wedding day which is uh soon very soon um two days actually um i just want to thank knockjaw jose himself one of our fans he's following me i guess on my personal twitter as well and when i mentioned it's been a year Last week I mentioned it had been a year since I got engaged. He congratulated me. So thank you, Jose slash Knockjaw, for that. I appreciate it. Uh, it was very sweet. Um, I'm very excited to get married. Moving on from that, um, I'm going to let us get right into our album this week because I'm actually quite excited about it because I didn't have to pick it this time around. It's a very meaty album with 15 tracks, though most of the songs are, well, comparatively short to some of the things we reviewed in the past. It's also a band we've reviewed before. This week we have They Might Be Giants and their album, Glean, their 17th studio release. Wow. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's a... I kind of missed it the first time. I, I, I didn't even know it, it, it came out. Because They Might Be Giants tend, tends for me, from where I usually frequent, be a little bit underground as far as when their albums come out. That and the fact that they're releasing one every other year for the past 30 years, give or take. Uh, honestly, I should really be checking their website like every six months to see if they did something new. Yeah, I mean, considering they just released, it's pretty rare even over the course of this podcast that an artist will double themselves. We've been around, we're nearing our third year anniversary. That'll come up early July. Well, and also they're actually very active on Tumblr. Um, I follow them on Tumblr because Crash Courts has a Tumblr as well. And uh, they post very frequently old songs, new songs, stuff they're working on, where they're going on tour. Um, they use it as an extension of their website. So if you want to know when a release is coming out, you check there. Um, so I knew about Glean. I just, it had kind of fallen to the back of my head because I was so focused on reviewing Blur's newest record, which we did last week. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I had known, but I didn't go after it. So I'm glad that John has picked it, because... And thanks for telling me. Yeah, oh, sorry. Well, you're also glad that John picked it, because you did pick the first one. That was Nanobots, mm -hmm. their 16th studio release that they did back... Uh, that we reviewed back in episode 38. So if you're interested in that, go check back. Granted, we weren't as refined in our earlier days, but, you know, we'll try to do it more justice today. Uh, also, I'd like to say some thoughts on They Might Be Giants that perhaps we didn't get a chance to say back then, uh, because... They we might be giants. As, we well, weren't as verbose back then. We weren't as more. Rather, I wasn't as verbose. If back we did an hour and a half on a review, like that was like monstrous. That's true. That was not the average. That yeah. Was not, that was that's actually no. less than our current average. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, they might be giants. <laughs> are probably as prolific as we have been at this point. I mean, they are easily the most prolific artists we've ever encountered. They basically perspire music. Now with, as John mentioned, seventeen studio albums. 8 live albums, 10 compilations, 21 EPs, 11 singles, and 5 video albums. Also, it appears that some of those numbers, uh, courtesy of my dutiful Wikipedia research, may not even be updated. <laughs> so, those kinds of figures, while visually impressive, still identify a talent that's pretty easy to overlook because it makes them appear as if 
they don't take themselves so seriously. Well, granted, on an album scale, we don't get as overwhelmed by the complexity or the virtuosity on a track-by-track -track basis in these albums. In fact, much of what they've written could be described as ditties, to say nothing of their work that they've marketed as children's songs, which are often inherently simple. But even still, with those kinds of numbers, you're bound to knock one out of the park every once in a while. Say, for instance, as we've raved about for two years straight, our reaction to Darlings of Lumberland off of Nanobots, which is extremely complex. So to have that kind of like a perpetually creative mind is really worth defending because they probably have more practice than most artists out there, more work they can draw from and build off of. We don't encounter that so much. In fact, so many artists we look at treat or at least market every album they release as a career-changing magnum opus, a project so brash and ambitious that it invites harsher scrutiny and almost guarantees disappointment. Meanwhile, the effort drains them and makes them feel deserving of a five-year vacation because the artist needs his rest. Well, from what I gather, these guys don't sleep. They perspire music during the day, and they snore music at night. So it's not that they don't take themselves seriously, it's that music is in their bloodstream, and it would be released whether we were waiting for it or not. And it's true if you look back through their work, you don't get the output of a mindless assembly line, but instead, a series of experiments. They shouldn't be perceived as music factories, but more as a research lab. In fact, even down to the 45-second, 30-second, 15-second releases, the only difference between them and what I would call bona fide experimental rock artists is that They Might Be Giants aren't afraid to show their work. This is also a curious little throwback for them. Back in the 80s, when they were first getting started out, uh, through a series of unfortunate events, they lost much of their ability to record music. And as a promotional tool, they started something that they call Dial-A-Song. Dial-A-Song was where they would record a song, put it on their answering machine, and hand out the number. The number was for fans, was for uh, other musicians, was for people trying to sign them, all that sort of stuff. You call up, you listen in to the answering machine, and you hear the song. Sometimes a jingle, every once in a while some oddball pieces. They might be giants. Oddball is their nature. So yeah, doing they this, no pretensions about that whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> they did this for about twenty years till about two thousand and six. Um, sadly, I got into them like more more heavily after that date. After Dial a Song was gone. Here, uh, from the very first track of Race onward, these were all Dial a Songs of the twenty fifteen era. They brought it back. They even got a phone number that was like their original phone number. Most of this album, though I don't think it's all of it, is part of that nature. They're making music, putting it, and previewing it to all the fans, if you're willing to call the number. Mm. It's kind of an interesting concept of marketing, which worked for them for quite some time. And it's also a nice little throwback and nod towards their long-standing fans. So it's kind of a curious origin point, at least in my point of view, for this album. Yeah. Well, well the <laughs> glean, album, first of all, as a yeah. title, I mean, it's what you glean from it. I mean, that's so inviting, as album titles go. <clears throat> it's uh, a word you've used here. Oh, I do. Actually, ad nauseum. Yeah, well, I mean, you're just not nauseating. I am nauseating inherently. Yeah, so, you know. Wow, he beat me to it. He didn't let me get the insult in because he eh, just well, did it himself. You're predictable. Well, it See? Bounced yeah. it back. Oh, oh wow. No, no, no. I remember your gloom. <laughs> anyway, back to the album. Once again, Erase, track one the introduction track of the album. Um, very paced delivery, 
right off the bat. It's jaunty. It's got that kind of dancey feel, like you want to get up and bounce around. The very standard rock scheme sort of personified for They Might Be Giants. Dancey, jaunty. I mean, these are kind of things that we, yeah, generally use to describe them. But it, it makes me actually want to remark on something that we maybe even didn't reference in our first review back in episode 38. Uh, it's that they have a very timeless sound. I mean, apart from just, again, dancey and jaunty, it's just the whole effect of this. It feels like it could have been made back in the 80s, and it could have been made today. And again, it should be mentioned that this was made by guys in their 50s. That's a little bit incredible, considering it has that sort of youthful indie rock sound in every sense. I mean, it, it makes me actually want to look back to their earliest work to find variations, and there's not a whole heap. Granted, there's a few songs with that are, like, they have the unmistakable 80s drum machine, but the content itself is pretty timeless, which isn't to say that they're stagnating. It's just an example of identity trumping genre in all respects. What I really like also about this as an intro song is it's got that high energy. And, I mean, albums can start slow and still be engaging as well, but for They Might Be Giants especially, I like being kind of thrown into it either with something curious or something high energy. Well, they now, have that, those two elements to it. Like, they have the experimental side, and then they have just that high energy side. It's it's kind of like the filler for their work, which still works, and you don't lose a beat. Well, it's like how Nanobot started with um, Your Head's on Fire. I mean, that song, it had a chord and some lyrics, and then you're into the song, and it's this bizarre song about a guy who's got a combustible head. It how, pulls you in. How much jarring can you get? Right. In this case, one of my favorite little tricks that they used was the varying of the vocal speed, the pacing yeah. that he goes through. Um, from a more deadpan work in the uh, chorus to kind of a punctuated, pronounce every syllable, and every once in a while make those syllables a little bit off. This this change of pacing in the vocals is really enjoyable because it, it sections off parts of the song, but with the through line of the music, it's fun. It's fun to really see different aspects and sort of different reactions from the singer for this song. I would describe it as a kind of matter-of-fact vocals, vocal delivery. It, it has this like warm tenor, almost like a product of suburbia, and this kind of tone where you feel like he's not even really singing to you, he's just sort of conversing to you. And it has that, that that's where that pacing comes in. He breathes as needed, you know, and the fact that it, well, falls into the measure division is just by chance, because he's just chatting. And what I also really like is that Typically, we get progressive choruses in a lot of songs where the chorus will change a little bit from, from chorus to chorus. Here, we get something a little different where the verses are progressive in style and shape. Um, they, they, he doesn't recite them the same way every time. He changes it up from verse to verse, giving it a dynamic that you know usually you'd see in a change-up in a chorus, which I thought was very interesting. Well, even the choruses have something similar. For instance, in the first chorus, he mentions... Button marked a race when darlings must be murdered, when your heartbreak overwhelms your heart. And that's just the first chorus, which is fairly short for a chorus. Again, as you said, the verses are more expansive. But then by the time we get to the second chorus, he really, really develops that further into things you cannot face, the skeletons that won't stay down, the mercy kill that can't be drowned. Like, it, he has this development within the chorus themselves. He goes from very short and concise choruses to longer ones. And within that, the rhythm is is really stuttered and stifled, just like his vocals are as well. And then there's my favorite line from the song. Put one box on the sidewalk, then you return with the next and the first one's gone. And he does that, a nice deadpan. But when he takes it, takes that uh, pre-chorus line and reintroduces it towards the end, put... Box, sidewalk, then, return, next, 
first one's gone. Yeah. I love the way he kind of just stutters it. And it's like he dropped it's, out it, words. It's kind of like the sing song. Well, well like obviously it's sing songy, but it's like got this bobbing quality to it. Like you find yourself irresistibly just like rocking back and forth. The whole song has to that, it. though. Right, and that's along both his vocals and and uh, the groove itself, which is like the sort of one end, three end, one end, three end, and that's over for pretty much most the majority of the verses here it's like this magically simple yet thoroughly addicting groove that you know is really great for a first track it's mm-hmm. like no criticism can be can be applied at this early, at this early point well one criticism would be that it's a little bit too classic it doesn't do anything really special Nothing. But it's also quintessentially them. Like it's the yeah. kind of thing that people, I think, they've known. I'm reaching clearly... for a criticism oh, course, here because this isn't a five star song, not by any stretch of the means. And if you have criticism, I mean, if you don't have criticism, I would incline it to be a very highly rated song. This is just a really perfect earworm it's, when it, it comes down to it. It's more that I think I understand why children's music was a pretty good side project for them because children like the way he speaks. They they like feeling naturally spoken to. Mm -hmm. They like that very matter-of-fact delivery, and they like bobbing back and forth. So it's like, I I don't know how they made the jump over to children's music. They've been doing it since 2002 with their their first children's album uh, called No. But it's the kind of thing that just lends itself, it blends right into the rest of their discography. Mm -hmm. Like, I could see them as children making the transition into their work easily. And yes, part of that is because it's simple, it's bobbing, it's, you know, it's... It's easy to grab hold of, but that's nothing to sneeze at for music, as I described in my intro. And it's very feel-good. Yeah. And speaking of feel-good, track two, Good to Be Alive. So we get here this <laughs> a very beach rock sound. You think Beach Boys, that kind of a pop. That's there in the guitar. That's though. in the guitar, but it's not in the percussion work. It's more exotic than that to me. It okay. actually, despite the fact that, like... The, the synthesizer steps in is a little bit more ancient sounding, but it's hardly using an exotic scale. It's just traveling down A minor. Um, it's really more in the way that it reacts to the two drum sounds that I get that exotic feel. They're somewhat bongo-ish, and it's this sort of like, I don't know how to describe the rhythm exactly, this sort of like, one, Anna, Anna, one, Anna, and it's just like the way they break up the 16th notes and like place the accent on the end there, always on the end. It's just this, I wouldn't call it beach-like, but it's definitely got a little bit of an exotic nature to it. Maybe like Somewhere an island in, feel. In the tropics, sure. Yeah, that, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, but it's still, it's one of those, it's just like a simple experimental rhythm, but like, it's a perfect product. It's yeah. like, it's something they just pitched as an idea and they had on the shelf and they used and they didn't really modify it. They didn't expand on it. They just kept it just as is, but it's so perfect. It doesn't need anything else. No. Well, the solid bass and like I said, the beachy guitar, that's the part that I think you might be latching on as beach because first you have that synth per, uh, percussion work and as soon as the guitar comes in it kind of transforms the whole piece flips it on its head so you go from almost it i want to say that the, those first few bars were almost eerie and then they warm up almost instantly when the guitar comes in that's what transforms it for me that's what moves it through phases for me and picks it up and fleshes it out it 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 doesn't have the same identity from the beginning of the song towards the end of the song it does transform a little bit. I mean, even in terms of, like, the layers they apply. Yeah, like, after four bars, we're joined by that sort of basic rhythm guitar that is not so much... I mean, it's less beach-like. It's more generic. It's a little bit more carefree, kind of not unlike the stuff that we got just two weeks ago with Sean Mendes. 
It's um, well, yeah, and I th- I think also what really lends to this song's construction as a whole is the accordion hum that comes in about halfway through the song, playing it for some accents here and there, but mostly just kind of dragging it out and letting it hum along, giving a bass layer to the rest of the track. Right, and the whole thing just feels warm. Yes, all said and done, and this is perfect for what they're saying. Hello, mind. It's good to be awake again. Spent some time reflecting. Hello, hand. We all salute you, hand. Five fingers strong. It's good to have you back again. Well, come on. They're, he's, they're actually talking to their body parts. Well, and being again, like, it's also hard to like take remove yourself from the knowledge that they've done children's music at this point. I mean, it's the kind of perfectly marketable track. Frankly, it beats out the wiggles. Well, <laughs> it culminates so perfectly with the pre-chorus chorus of... I'm not a motivational speaker, but on this I have arrived. It's good to be alive, good to be alive. And when they say it, when that is sung out, I believe. I believe they believe it's good to be alive. It's a truism (laughs) for them. To be fair, though, they can tell us utter ridiculousness, and we probably would still believe it because of their conveyance. We'd probably still believe that they believe it. Yeah. That that. they believe whatever ridiculous thing they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But at least in this case, it's something that almost everyone can relate to. If you have a hand, if you have five fingers strong, then sure, be a little self-reflecting about it. It's like this entire track is just sitting back to recognize that it exists, that we exist. And and it obviously culminates in the chorus to be, uh, it's good to be alive, it's good to be alive, but like... that's it's it's something again that's easy to overlook. It's something it's easy to like bury in in meaning after meaning and like there, there's no additional layer there. It's exactly what it appears. It's and pure. It, it's exactly and it's 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 worth noting in its purity because we don't get that a lot. Well, the last song I could think of that really was this good natured would have been Don't Worry Be Happy and it's the same sort of idea. <laughs> yeah. A very yeah, a very simple sweet song that just is meant to make you feel better. Of course, we have a They Might Be Giants twist on the whole thing. An oddball twist of talking to your body parts. And I love that aspect. Sure. I love it's, hey, here's my hand. Hi, hand. We all salute you, hand. That, that just the idea of holding out your hand and, and giving them a salute. And I'm miming it right now. So imagine that. Well, is, is perfect. It's just comical, yet endearing at the same time. Absolutely endearing is the word, I think. And, and I really like that they're just very... It's just a very sweet, true message, you know, and I think that that's wonderful. I, 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 I don't really, we don't really get that often to steep ourselves emotionally in something that's just pure good, you know? It's just <laughs> good. There's no other meaning. There's no other level. There's nothing to dissect. It's just good. And they even managed to bring this out, like, in their lyrics uh, later on, which is this little quick metaphor. I'm not some mega church style preacher, but my spirit is revived. It's good to be alive. Good to be alive. And it, when they bring in that mega church thing, and he's preaching, you know, that it's good to be alive. Yet at the same time, I noticed that it contrasts interestingly with the chord progression, which sounded very church-like itself. It sounded like it was taken from a hymnal. And so, in a sense... He is kind of preaching it, and it's a damn good thing to preach, but he says it very humbly. In fact, the only thing that would really separate it is if that, uh, that like, more, I think it was an accordion drone or something like that, if that had mm-hmm. been actually replaced by an organ. Sure. And it still has kind of the same, like, piping effect that an organ would. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it kind of brings together the whole emotionality and structure of the track. Yeah, absolutely. Coining it now, the Church of Giants. That's a pretty cool name. Especially when all they have to do is preach. Yeah, it's good to be alive. Good to be alive. That uh, is our framework. From here we go to track three. 
Underwater Woman, which is one of my favorite type of They Might Be Giant songs because it's story time. I love, I love when the, I, it's not the best, worst, whatever. It's one of my favorites because I like when they tell us a little story like Too Tall Girl from Nanobots. We're going to refer to that album at least a little bit. I like that this is a story time about an underwater woman and, uh, you know, lyrical delivery in the story tracks are also what really hook me. But of course, the delivery is important. And in this case, yeah. I mean, it's accompanied by such a bizarre bass pattern, which to me was the most gripping thing here, such that I wasn't really thinking about the story. I was thinking about how it was told. And it's told in a very, very ambiguous fashion. We start off in D and we employ this sort of this strange chromatic motion by going down a whole step, up a half step, down a whole step, up a half step. And we work our way down a fifth below where we started, and then we go right back up to D, and we do it all over again. Meanwhile, the keyboard steps over here and plays this, like, stuttered, kind of, kind of harsh fifth right on the A. So, where you would normally get, like, a basic fifth between all of this, and all the intervals, let's say, of a given diatonic mode, instead you get all the intervals everywhere because of this. It's a very, very strange approach, and it keeps it incredibly ambiguous, because you're not even sure whether you're in D minor or D major or D Dorian or what have you. Um, only in the second verse do we seem to shift firmly in D minor, as per the B flat in the melody, but the bass never, ce never ceases that pattern. The pattern is still just as strange as it started, and it always manages to hit these harsh intervals that, that keeps it I guess feeling like it is muffled a little bit, let's say perhaps as if it was actually underwater. When the bass, though, finally seems to settle down, you're also being introduced to some really wicked horn uh, punctuation. Yeah. And some very interesting percussion, like, interlude-type pieces, where all the, every once in a while the drummer just goes a little bit crazy. I think that was in the chorus. In the chorus, the bass did seem to settle. I think it did uh, withdraw that pattern, and then we have the addition of a brass line. And So we're getting... Even when the bass is settling down, we're still not being allowed to settle, because new elements are being thrown in. The build is getting more complicated, though it's not like a very complicated build as far as the pantheon of music goes it's still very approachable it's still very clear cut well, all since, done. since you're on form i mean that's something to mention about the progression of the chorus because really it it it, it leaves pretty quickly in fact the 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 words are underwater woman breathing underwater brushing her hair eating a pear no one can tell when she cries away away, away. And it kind of fades out like that. It feels as if the chorus should have more staying power than this. Like, it, it feels like it was going to kind of give us another refrain within the chorus itself, but it, it cuts off that enthusiasm fairly quickly as he kind of repeats away, away, away. Well, there's also the hook, or something like a hook, or maybe even a secondary chorus that the song actually starts with, and that's where a lot of the punctuation comes across. And that's due to the inflection of the vocal delivery. Un... Underwater woman, underwater lady. The way he pauses. Underwater lady. <laughs> and well, it's, there's, it there's sounds so awkward. There's here and there, and yeah, that awkward sense. That was as early as, as I mean, you hear that towards the, the front, beginning. Front, That's the front line. The, and, the, vocal, uh, the verses. And it kind of functions as both a chorus and a hook, so it's kind of like an, a nice little oddball piece. It became a focal point for me to really get this song, because uh, it... It finalizes itself with, no one on the shore will ever know what's in her heart. So it's already kind of forecasting a tragedy in, in some regard, but 
But this is what I mean by like nonsensical. They don't they don't make any pretensions about what they do. So as far as they're concerned, like to tell a story like this that sounds very grand and as excited as Matt may be to hear this story, I mean it it's really as if they know they're pulling from the bottom of the barrel. But that's that's the elemental in their delivery. It's like underwater woman, underwater lady, no one on the shore will ever know what's in her heart. It sounds so cliche to read, in a sense, and hence he reads it as if He's kind of just reading like an eighth grader would, you know, a very poor read, a very like underwater lady, and he's like losing interest in a sense. It's like that's how this comes across to me. And like there's that, I don't know, there's that awareness of their delivery and the content and the marriage in between created by the music, which is what I've always loved about them. Everything comes across as either satirical, quirky, or just plain out bizarre. And I think that's what kind of makes a track like this still stand out, regardless of lyrical complexity or how vast the story is. Well, it's funny to read, but even what I said before, you know, eating a pear, brushing her hair, like, that. come on. That stuff is, it's stuff you laugh at to hear, but when you really think back to, to like, merge it with the story as a whole, I feel like there's a, a, a ever-present awareness that this is not a terribly cohesive thing. Well, like, something that a, a middle schooler might write if asked for an assignment at, like, 2 p.m. and you're tired and you just put something on the paper. And I did you, it. If you really look into it, one of the verses, something that really kind of gives insight into the story itself, laughing uncontrollably, who is she talking to holding up a shell like a telephone? There's that comedy because the delivery line comes off as a punchline. But following it up with the lines, frantically digging through a pile of old papers, intently staring at a photograph. Obviously there it reaches out a little bit, but it's like one of the few moments in, 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 in the track. And I it's mean, those little, but it's those little hiccups and where they go just ever so slightly serious that keep reinforcing the idea, yeah... It, this is this is funny. It's got irony involved. It's got satire involved. But there is still a serious story it's going on. It's still incredibly here. vague. I mean, that, even that line yeah, itself paints it paints somewhat of a picture. But we have no idea who this woman is, nor we will we ever. From here, we go to our next track on the album, "Music Jail Part One and Two. It's one track, clearly two different songs within the track. No, parts. not clearly. Not clearly. Not too. No, there is a break. There's there there's a break. There's oh, it's clear. Break. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very clear. clear. Um, but the music fir- jail part one and two. This song, frankly, I loved the crap out of. Yeah. I, <laughs> I I probably haven't at least been blown away by the form of something ever since Darlings of Lumberland. And this is in the similar vein. Right. And we've had, don't get me wrong, again, this is not really a matter of like one through five. I'm not even going to begin like rating songs here. It's really more in a manner of which they surprise you with each and every shift. Um, first of all, strings usher us in here with this very bold melodic hook. Like, it's instantly longing. It's it's on a ledge somewhere. Frankly, it, it, it comes across as a little bit exotic, but you could put a place to it. Its its it quality is a little bit oriental. It, it's it, you hear that in the semitone glissandos of the violins, which you have two violins working in tandem, one in each ear, perhaps harmonizing just slightly together. And their their glissando as they slide from one note to the next is just slightly uh uh off put. It almost comes off as frantic for me, sort of like a long drawn out build up to something. It's not. It's not an actual culmination or the adrenaline pumping through you, but it feels like the violins are leading to an event that's going to be 
important. But it's in a scary way in some ways, in a creepy way, in an off-putting way. There does seem to be like a slight little horror element there. I mean, I did mention it was longing, but also because it sounds so foreign in a way. It's like you're entrapped in the machinations of a distant land. But when it comes to these violins themselves, I mean, just tonally what it's doing is, is pretty amazing. Simplistic still, but amazing. We work our way down through C minor and anchor ourselves on the fifth before repeating. But as soon as, as, as the second repeat, we're already taking ourselves away from going down to the fifth. And this time we're going all the way down to C, right on the chord change, right at that moment toward the four chord F minor. It's such a decisive move contrasted by the fact that the strings are incredibly emotive and sorrowful at the same time. Uh, then we go into the verses. And the lyrics, I mean, it's not about what they're saying, but how they're delivered. The, the, the verses are just simply a one line repeated and then a second line after four repetitions. And the first line is, Where you're going, buddy, where you're going, buddy. But the way it's delivered, it adds to that little kind of horror element that we were detecting already, but gives it a playfulness as well. Well, it's all over this kind of like stage piano, this what and two and and two and and it was a very strange shift again from that like you know longing you know uh, operatic style um, or at least oriental operatic style uh, string element. Um, it's a strange shift to me, but uh, it, it worked 100%. Also, I think another reason for that little horror element, as we detect here, is a little flat five thrown in. Just just, just for added horror, you know. And like, a little horror in your spice cabinet. They do culminate verse-wise with, Won't you come with me to music jail? And then at that moment... It's ironically turns positive. Yeah. There's like a little bit of mode mixture in here. We've been in C minor, and then it, it oh, won't you come what? with me to music jail? And it's C major. There. There's jazz hands. Very strange with the mode mixture. I mean, it, it's it's that big culmination, and then after that, it brings us back to the hook. We hear the the string element again. Uh, this time with a very crisp ba- bass clarinet thrown over that. That's something I don't really hear a lot. Um, I think it was a bass clarinet. It could have been a contrabassoon or something like that. But yeah, it, it provides such a depth that, frankly, I'm going to say it on air. I think it beats out the bass guitar any day, especially if you want to, like, really provide an oomph to something. Of course, it's, uh, it's elemental with that staccato approach. And then it goes right back into the verse of where you going, darling. And it's a little bit more evolved now. It's a little bit more flushed out. It still has the creepy vibe going on. Mm-hmm. And once again, culminates with "Won't you come to music jail?" And then he goes. The drums into the are a little line. more crazy. That was one thing that, that was, really, really the kicked it off at starts, that moment. Starts getting a little bit yeah. nuts. And then we have the chorus again. "Won't you come with me to music jail?" Uh, back up to C major, and then a very strange transition. Here we we kind of like build to this vaudevillian, like kind of like getting ready for for a performer on stage but you know in, in like an early 19th century environment or something like that it utilizes this a flat major and then shift to g major kind of teetering between those two chords and a flat is the six for c minor but you could also kind of figure that the goal is really the g major resolution which is the five of c major which we just had so you get a lot of chromatic tension here especially with uh the element that exists right overhead this weird like flute thingy just hovering almost in like 16-bit fashion it sounds so cheesy but you know it jives in a way somehow they managed to do that and then they just they go into the lines let's form a band let's take a stand a little bit airier here and then Mm -hmm. they have a finale. They, a, a they have faux a faux ending. Not a faux ending. Well, yeah, it's an ending. It, it it's, really it, is, it an, is ending. an ending. And then they do it again. It's the same, like, like dun, just, dun, 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 d
and then there's a pause, we and they go had, right back into it. We had an interesting experience with this, considering that John never looks at the track bar, and I look at the track bar. I am always just kind of like staying there, like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder how far along, where is it going to go? So I'm staring like, this really feels like an end. Like, what can they do after this? It seemed like such a strange moment to reprise, but they did it so expertly. I mean, it comes back in, in classic encore fashion. You reprise with the first verse, this time with a more improvisatory klezmer violin overhead, which kind of really links to the to the sort of, I mean, granted, of course, klezmer is not oriental. I heard the opening hook as a more oriental sounding approach. This was unmistakably klezmer. Still, they're just jamming out. They're jamming out to to a more foreign sound here, and it, it's it's out of their element as far as I know. Still, it worked expertly. I assume they could probably uh, dish out as many session musicians, or ra rather they have a lineup out the door for session musicians willing to hop onto their work. But then after this, we have a very quick transition to part two. I would say it probably begins around here, and yet still... I think it's kind of a jam at this point. I don't know whether you consider this to be the real separator, because the reprise to me still strikes as part of part one. Clearly, it's using the same chords as earlier. Except but there's endings before this reprise this happens. Is a trans this is a distinct like transition slash maybe interlude slash uh, instrumental slash intro to the second track or which, the second part rather and this is... in, this instrumental is a, is probably one of my favorite moments in the entire album it's a sort of like I could only classify it as a George Martin that is George Martin of the Beatles the, the fifth Beatle that we never refer to but he implemented a lot of these like woodwind effects into the Beatles later works and here we get a reprise of that clarinet uh, whether it's the bass clarinet, I'm not sure. It could just be tool, uh, two medium-range um, uh, alto clarinets. And they just dueled it off. One in one ear, one in the other ear, all in D-Mixolydian. It was phenomenal, even though it only lasted for under 10 seconds. And, and then from here, we certify, certifiably go into the new track. And this track just... The new half, part two, that is. What, what have you? What's going on? This piece is musically almost the opposite. It's easy, it's breezy, it's a saunter, it's enjoyable, and kind of lighthearted musically. It's pretty happy-go-lucky. Like, it's a, definitely a, a shift from the previous track. It it makes you feel more happy or lighthearted. It's sort well, of a, it's, it's a, re a reprise. It alleviates the horror. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And but the, but the whole thing is, lyrically, it's actually probably darker it's well no not probably it's definitely darker because well, it's about actually being in music jail like what you're going through being in it in this music crowd i'm alone i'm alone just one call aloud no one's home no one's home but that's not that's not the best part the final tr lines i am getting pale and i can't hit his oh that's gorgeous his pulse was... at all or what have you. It's a range that is just not in my vocal. That was my favorite part about this final track was his vocals because he he pretty much exists in that falsetto and the falsetto is is constantly changing and sliding upward and sliding downward. But he also sounds like he's just just a smidgen high, you know. But like high on life that is. I mean, it it it's it's weird because the lyrics do hint at a kind of like being trapped. But of course, what are you trapped in? You're trapped in in a land of music? A trap? I mean, how bad could that be? You'd think. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. There's a lot to, there's a lot to glean from this album. <laughs> but uh. I am getting pale. Who could post my bail? Don't believe it. Dreams of leaving are all gone. 
That's not very it's nice. It's not very nice. It's, it's not... very dark, actually, and negative. In a way. But it's so lighthearted, so upper echelon of the vocal range. It's it's pretty. It's uh, This is probably, despite the the harrowing nature in the interior, this is probably one of the most uh, exciting tracks to listen to on this album. I would make that claim, at least. Um, again, just for the complexity of the form, because they're, they keep changing it up. Now... Objectively speaking, it could be argued that this track does have a little bit of ADD, but I have kind of a, 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 a triple arc, um, well, a single arc with, with, three distinct, uh, with three distinct regions in it as far as my experience with this track. It's the kind of song that I think at first you're just, you're just blown away. You're along for the ride, and it is awesome 100% of the time. Then you start to think academically, like, yeah, all right, it's a little disjointed. They kind of push in what they need to at the moment, but it's all just to take you in the ride. So despite the inner spasticity, you realize that that's the point. So then at the tail end, you're finally just back to the beginning. You're like, no, this is awesome. And no matter how much, no matter how much you look at this from an academic perspective, you realize that that would be missing the point. This is all about just messing with your expectations as you go. In a sense, it's probably more prog than any prog thing we've looked at. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's bold. Well, and also the thing is about this song <laughs> and songs like um, Darlings. Darlings is that I like when they break the form completely and they do something unique. They do something that you don't expect because it's when they're at their best because they really are just like, here's a thing and it's a really awesome thing. And you're like, yes, it's a really awesome thing. But it's as like, I said earlier, it does get it does get to a point where it seems like it's just coming out of like a, a, a spurt of being high, you know, and then yeah. you're just like, ah, it's an idea, let's attach it to that. But there's too much intricacy in here yeah. such that I've heard songs like that. I've criticized them because I know what they're doing and I can see right through it. It's like, yeah, that's a typical stoner Again, track. But this, it's, it's highly sincere. produced. It's very sincere. As I said earlier, they make no pretensions. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, this at the end of the day is just a, br- it, it's a, it's a, a kind of masterpiece. And I'll leave it, I, I want to put emphasis on that kind of, because uh, everyone is going to have their different idea of what a masterpiece entails. For me, I really like form. It's not necessarily even up my alley in every sense of the way. It's not really in my, my, my genre, but it also infuses so many styles, so many genres, that it really makes every attempt to leave no one out, and I think it succeeds. From there, we move on to track five, Answer. So the first thing I noticed about this song was that it's the closest to their very 90s form. When they went through the Malcolm in the Middle phases, I'll call it, because a ton of people, of course, remember that song, which was the theme from Malcolm in the Middle. It had that kind of 90s rock feel, which is what, you know, they were big for at that time. And this fits that framework that they had. It's a very smooth groove, stark stark contrast, frankly, to what we had. But, you know, nothing really could follow that up. It it reminds me, I think when you look at the lyrics here, because I had to go to lyrics on this one. I mean, the, the, the song itself didn't impress me in the same right. But because of that, you know, it's called Answer. The answer, I will be the answer to all your prayers. And what he proceeds to do is walk you through every element of expectation and desire and the dream being killed as a result. But in such a, again, as we keep referring to it, a happy-go-lucky fashion. So it's kind of like this blatantly contrasting satire that I noted uh, in a lot of Mike Furman's work. Now, of course, Mike Furman as a comedy musician is much more recent, so I would almost... um, 
expect that he, that they're the kind of band that may very well have influenced him. Oh, I'm sure. There's not a doubt in my mind that he was influenced by them. But mm-hmm. what I like about the lyrical structure is that it's both funny and incredibly sad. And they do that very well, that kind of satire. And, okay, let's get into some of these lyrics. You ordered well, they brought you medium rare. You were promised fair, and in response a clap of thunder broke the air. The weather changed. The sky went black. And then it rained. There's a guy down in his luck. But it comes off a, a little funny. Yeah. A little funny, a little bit lighthearted, because it's not like they're not going depressing or deep or scary with the vocals. So we're not coming off It's a little bit wah-wah, like, you know. You yeah. see, it's, it's like more of a cartoonish, there you go. There's a a cartoonish figure, yeah, yeah, down in his luck. And the pre-chorus, it may take an ocean of whiskey and time to wash all the letdown out of your mind. And this may not be the item you selected, but I am the answer to all your prayers. That line, though, about whiskey and time is so bleak. It's so bleak. Like, essentially <laughs> saying, well, drink your, your problems away. Yeah, but it's also kind of... It's satirical itself. Yeah, I course, mean, yeah. that satire, yeah, that's part of the, the joke, the punchline. Is it as bleak as it might seem like a thankless existence... But don't lose hope just yet. You'll be remembered for your persistence. And this is the thanks you get. And I love what he goes uh. into for the bridge. <laughs> his thanks. This is the thanks. You wanted tall. I came in under 5'4". Then you asked for dark. I tend to sunburn a lot. As for handsome, well, can't help you there. <laughs> so make of it what you will. I mean, it's a matter Dude, of like, he gets so into the imagery in these pieces. He looks at, you know, item after item to really, really paint a picture of the character. And then, of course, in his comedic twist, he just goes for the gut. That probably could have been the summation to everything. Well, you ask for handsome, eh, can't help you there. You know, which are basically, the, the is the super category of all the previous things. I, I love that buildup. But it also adds a little bit of sweetness to the song, just to this idea of, well, I'm the answer to your prayers, and I'm ta- tall... I get sunburned a lot. I'm not handsome, but but I'm here. I'm the answer. But the scary part you know? is is that there's stuff going on in the chorus that's just kind of messed up. All this time, the surveillance machine has been all up in your affairs. When will you realize that I am the answer to all your prayers? That's creep right there. That's really creepy, but it's lightheartedly presented, so you kind of gloss over it the first time you hear it. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is one of those tracks that actually, in a sense, almost makes you think. It's just like... I almost get the sense that there are two dual messages going on here. I mean, just simultaneously, you get, on one hand, well, be thankful for what you have. On the other hand, well, life's kind of a bitch. Yeah. You know, you don't get everything you want. I Both of that is, is presented here in equal right. And to me, that is a brilliant concept, despite the fact that the music may not be quite as impressive. I mean, when you look at the music, he adds different elements. Like in the second verse, he, they do bring back the accordion drone. I appreciate that. Who doesn't like a good accordion? Um, and it does get a little bit grander in the second chorus with the hi-hat kind of like blurring it up and the electric guitar comping in the right ear. Uh, but probably my my favorite part was the bridge where the piano steps in to have this little aside. And that was the moment in which he says it might seem like a thankless existence. It felt like the moment where the track kind of breathed and and most effectively conveyed both messages. But, I mean, at, at its core, it's a pop rock track. I mean, there's mm-hmm. not much more to it than that. With all of those descriptors, I mean, that's what it comes down to. You can picture your standard pop rock of the 90s. This is pretty much fits that bill. All said and done, it comes off as the most backhanded love song of all time. <laughs> like, your life sucks so badly that you should really end up settling for me. Your 
stalker that lives above you in the apartment complex. Because like, I'm the answer how, your prayers. Yeah. There, there you go. You don't have anybody yeah. else. Here you go. I'm here for you. And I can get rid of my shrine now. Like, that's the sort of, like, level it's hitting. It is a comedic gold right there. That, it's yeah. so good. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's it. I'm done. It's it's that good. But going from that, we actually get a pretty good follow-up comedy song as well, which is I Can Help the Next in Line, which is, at its core, a a ode to the bureaucratic service industry. Well, first of all, I, I need to. I mean, it was a very interesting um, musical backdrop that he yeah. chose. Uh, we instantly get this like porno funk guitar. Yeah. I mean, emphasis on the porno. This is not. This is not your. Not your. Um, not your dad's funk. This is more of like. Um, like the funny thing is that actually contrasts with his melodies, which are still very, very par for the course for him. You have this like very strutty. Um, underbelly to this track, but yet the melodies are, are, are very straightforward. I mean, in the background, it's kind of like waning and gurgling that the guitar, it, it would be so much more attitude-driven if his voice wasn't so pleasant. In fact, perhaps that's intentionally contrasted by the theme, which is the teller man, who in his case is obliged to be pleasant. So there you get the duality. And, well, it, it sounds like every kind of teller, from bank teller to IRS guy to DMV, it is sort of the bureaucratic drone stuck in that job. I don't think it's federal, though. I think it's, um... DMV. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the DMV. Would the DMV say, have you been with us before? Baby. <laughs> it would say, I can help the next in line. I don't think I like your tone. And right there, that that, that finishing of that couplet... At the end of the first verse, it goes from this nice, happy-go-lucky to something that's kind of effed up, that's kind of darker, that's got a distorted guitar going through it. I'm going to have to ask you now to walk, take a walk with me. Put your hands where I can see them. I need to see some ID. Okay, that's the part of the DMV or bank experience you don't want to have. And the music is reflecting this. And I believe it was at that moment we get a transition that kind of brings back in the strings. That very, like, grand, you know, slightly epic string section that very, really, really didn't last very long. Um, and to be frank, I thought that the retransition back in after that was probably one of the things I would be a little bit more scrutinizing on the album. I didn't think they pulled it off in the same, in the same way. Uh, but I did think that the following bridge was awesome, short as it was. That this very last... Um, three lines here. I can help the next one in line. I don't think that I like your tone. I can help the next one in line. And what they do here is fascinating. They they portray it as kind of a round yeah. in, in descending pentatonic. So one says, I can help the next one in line, and then he continues through, on. I can help the, the next, next one. In, I don't think I like your tone. Was, and it's yeah. just over and over It's and almost over. adding that argumentative dialogue that would be in those places if someone's picking a fight with a teller. Mm -hmm. It gives that and, sense. You know, just the the monotonous tone and the, the minutiae of it all. Which is why I like the rising strings. It's it's simple, the well, way that they're going one, two, three, four. They're just going up. Well, it was just in that one moment, though. I felt like that was the only thing that was perhaps were, slightly out of place in this track. They were so effective at really just creating a bit of tension to reflect the less happy part of this experience. I still liked it. I just didn't like the retransition. I thought it was a little bit cut and paste. I'm sorry. But what I really like about this song and when they do things like this is they're ability to take something so completely mundane and overlooked and this is where their comedy truly shines and make it interesting engaging and even fun 
it's what the truest comedians can do is they take something that everybody knows and shows them why it's funny right and I made a joke while we were listening to it in between the pause between songs that they must just be surfing Wikipedia finding a page they like and writing a song about it because it's so random the ideas that they come up with so random the the specific themes or stories they like to tell with these songs. Well, I, I would only dispute the Wikipedia references because it's not really a matter of well, like it... picking things from a barrel. It seems like the kind of stuff that every comedian would say comes out of everyday life. You know, say for instance they just walked out of a place that was giving them a hard time and considering how prolific they are, I could see the song developing in their head and have it done by the time they even arrive home. Next we get Truck 7, Madam, I Challenge You to a Duel. This is a through-and-through through piano rock track, but even more so, it really sounds like a Ben Folds or a Ben Folds very song. much. It's just, it, it not only has the piano rock kind of style where it's a guy and a piano kind of rocking out, which is the definition. Well, also it, the chord changes, even just like the diminished shifts, uh, the chorus stepping in as they would back in the Ben Folds five days, all of that. And it's the singing, too, because as we just previously discussed, both Johns have a very 90s sound vocally and Ben Folds I mean flourished and began in the 90s so that that sound is very ubiquitous with that time it's that like indie kid kind of you know voice uh, the best way I could describe it also they're in a very similar range all three of them and man does it have a great bass line I love what the bass does throughout the entire song it does an incredible job of supporting the piano as it's going uh, from verse to chorus, verse to chorus, and making the transitions very nice as, as they move along. What I also like about the song, the song, the song structurally, is that it if it, it's like someone getting in your face story wise, like this woman is clearly getting up in his grill, as they would say, but he's being very proper about it. In like, his grill, being very, um, I don't know how else to say it other than being very British about it, very proper, being very gentleman about it. Yes, and so he's challenged her to a duel instead of doing other things that we might do. You are an unfit rival, by spirits taught to sing, but a tune so twisted now, like all that sweet's gone sour, oh dear. Madam, you mistake me for a fool. Yes, your little dog may hold the pistols, although he seems high-strung. Madam, I challenge you to a duel. My second warned you to be careful. The bell can't be unrung. Can't be unrung. I mean, yeah. That, that's that's the crux of the joke right there. It's not complex. It literally is just, you know, putting it in a different persona, an unexpected persona, and that's it. And uh, it's referring to actual dueling. I mean, saying, referencing my second, everyone when you duel has a second. The person usually hands you the gun, the person who counts off the duel, and who's got your back in case someone who, you know, because dueling wasn't always shoot to kill. It was just shoot, and then someone wins it's not it wasn't always shoot to kill so everyone had a second to help them after they've been shot to get home and get help you get a sense also that the other the other person is not so much it probably doesn't have the same vocabulary yeah like that really is where the joke gets a little bit funnier here is when you have the, uh, the contrast between the two people your litany of slurs i mean that implies that quite a few more verbose things were said on the other half as a side fact during way back when when dueling was still a thing they used to use things like wax bullets if they weren't shooting to kill and you would be able to feel like a hit upon yourself sort of like the first airsoft or paintball guns anyway back on topic all said and done it is the antithesis of the dude you got my back yeah I got your back alright let's go bust a cap in someone's such and such it is like 
that's what we kind of devolve to in the public setting of being, you know, rude or something like that or getting into fights or being all, quote, gangsta or anything like that. Yes, these are satirical, like, kind of bigoted ideas, but this is making fun of just the fact that we still have ideas like this, that we still have people from ghettos or what have you that are stuck doing, you know, having fights and things like that. This is the answer to... Well, let's deal with it. Let's let's have a gentleman gentlemanly argument. Let's actually deal with it like men. Except that you know, I, duels actually are probably the worst thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. It's still that. We still, should probably be thankful we don't have that anymore. It's still that satire. It's still that. Well, we're still fighting. This is how they used to do it, and there's the joke. I mean, it's all said and done. It comes off. Very, well, I don't think very you, good. I don't think we need to explain why that's is funny. It kind of speaks for itself. Uh, to be to be blunt, though, I will take it down just one notch. I think, as far as the music delivery was concerned, it chose a, a pretty safe route. I mean, there's really no interest for me to go into this too much deeply, other than to describe it as you described it—a Ben Folds track. That yeah. pretty much it feels like that. Uh, the progressions in it, everything about it, just kind of reeks of it. There's there's no reason it really had to be in that style, or no reason it didn't have to be. It was just kind of a choice. Um, and then as far as the theme itself, it's a cool concept, but it also enters into the idea that a lot of their concepts almost strike me as like diary entries of a sort. Like they come up with an idea during the day and then, well, a, a song can be made out of that one diary entry. It can still be very poignant in its way. It's just so concise, sometimes to the point of, you know, you wonder whether there's a next level being taken. In this case, it's, it's really just the visual I think that you get like this could be described with a snapshot being taken between one person busting a cap in the other person's ass and then the other person is just taking it like a gentleman and that picture would have all the comedy this itself you know it is what it is it is the picture it's pretty straightforward it's Leonardo DiCaprio's Romeo and Juliet the modern day version where they instead of swords they actually had glocks and other guns and things like that but they're still speaking in the very Shakespearean right. tone well yeah you can do this in any uh, I mean you can do this in like a, a, a cockney peasant of the 1200s talking to a nobleman that's also true yeah Moving right along, we get to track eight, End of the Rope. One of my favorite tracks for its lyrical content. So the music-wise, though, it takes the framework of more or less a doo-wop song. It's piano-driven, but it has that kind of doo-wop, slower side of doo-wop feel. But you still have a very fun bass going on. You still have a percussion line that likes to have a little bit of flair between verse intermissions and things like that. Something that's a little bit outside what I would typically think of when I think doo-wop. There is flair here. The biggest flair comes later in the synth. But as far as the overall um, construction of this track, it was a very, very weird blend. It, it has like the theatrical edge of a Billy Joel track in some ways, uh, but it's it's thrown back from like that 70s era back to a more 50s style doo-wop, uh, which is just this bare bones, you know, all in 6-8, uh, just playing the same piano chord over and over and over again. This kind of like honky-tonk twang piano chord. Um, and that comes across as you know, a little bit, a little bit simplistic. It's, it's. I mean, again, it's a choice, but it really reaches out to me in the synth solo. Oh my god, it's, that 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 synth solo was <laughs> uh, like I. 
I couldn't add enough exclamation points when writing about it. It's, it's like, not made, just it's, synth, it's, We say synth solos a lot. We say synth instrumentals a lot. I, I coined <laughs> that term. But this is made unique by that phasing effect that actually makes it sound like it transforms from one instrument into another over the course because the phasing effect is 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 tacked on, layered on so so smoothly and so so gradually. Kind of sounds like a moog a little bit. In fact, uh, the octave like ping ponging. Almost reminded me of that Emerson Lake and Palmer track, uh, Lucky Man. And then it's immediately followed by an electric guitar that's it's kind of out of tune. It's dark. It's almost drunk. That goes into a little intermission as well. The one right after the other was was so much fun. So much fun. And did a lot to liven up the track for me. But I was still way too focused on the lyrics themselves. To start off with, <clears throat> how thoughtless of me. How dumb can you be? Hopeless, wasn't that what you called me? And in fact, it was even more true than you knew. And now the chorus. The chorus was the crux of it for me. Where did the end of the rope go? I forget now. Did I let go? After you left me hanging on your words, which hung down like a rope, where did the end of it go? I'll never know. I love that metaphor. The end of the words is that hanging rope he's searching for, that lifeline. It's it's a great metaphor, and he just... He presents it vocally so beautifully. Well, and it, the imagery of it too is very strong. You can picture a rope hanging in front of him. If if the music, if there was an animated music video like him standing there talking to someone, and that's someone transforming into a physical rope hanging there in front of them and them falling away. It, it's very visual, and I, I like that. It, it, it's a thing that they've always been very good at. They might be giants. They're very descriptive songwriters, and they very rarely leave you with nothing even when they are writing about nonsense you still have something well that's why i think in in this case this song is actually more effective to me as a poem than it is a song mm -hmm. like i will make uh i had no criticism of these lyrics whatsoever i mean it really is beautiful you're gone but i'm still there clawing at the air now it's curtains for me and i'll st spend eternity doing joyless cartwheels in the void it, it's, it's it's powerful rather existential in a sense um, and that's just it. It just really didn't match so much. It, I mean, you could very, very uh, casually mark this off as like a, a, a contrast juxtaposition between the music and the lyrics, but eh, that's a little bit of a stretch. It's just, again, it was a choice. I love the synth solo, but everything else, uh, like the, the doo-wop thing got a little bit old for me. Even when it reprises at the end, there's not really much else there other than that. Well, there was that uh, organ, I believe, going on. Hmm. Towards the end, yeah. Uh, that's but right, they did have an organ. The yeah. final little flare of color that they decided to add into it. These I layers here, it. it just wasn't the most impressive to me thing to me on the album. It was a um, well, it was gotten... a filler track for them. In many ways, this this comes across as being a normal song, which <laughs> like <laughs> so what? Okay. Sue them. Yeah, exactly. If you want a normal song, though, we do have the next track, "All the Lazy Boyfriends." So I have a theory. Let me be John for a moment. I no, won't... no, no. I want to be John. You could be mad, but be like me. Okay. But I thought I was... Never mind. Neither of you be anyone. Um, so I, upon reading this title, reading the structure, All the Lazy Boyfriends, I couldn't help but think of the pop track from an artist we've mentioned before on the podcast, Beyonce, <laughs> All the Single Ladies, and thinking this was the antithesis, an anthem for all the lazy boyfriends. Um, turns out, listening to the song, I might not be completely far off, but it's not a direct correlation, though there could be some relation. Um, true and True, it's a pop track from the moment it starts, and... It is anthemic in this way that it's singing about 
lazy boyfriends <laughs> and the effect they have on others' lives. It's a fairly standard club pop beat and format. It's very much the thump-driven boom, 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 boom. And I mean, it's not doing anything even a special little, there. Even a little uh, more childish than that. It actually comes across as like a teeny bopper club track, which wouldn't be club, but you get my drift it, it's, it's also like pop from all eras i mean the bass has this kind of 80s drive to it like a more digitally produced bass in as much digital technology existed back in the 80s which wasn't very far so yeah i don't think the music here is anything to write home again uh to write home about but i think this is one of those cases where the juxtaposition would hold up a little bit more when you consider that the the boyfriend, as it were here, is obviously portrayed in a way that is negative on the outset, but also inevitable in a way, like it's just its own kind of generic. Push your hands in your pockets, spaced out and sleepless. Put your hand, put yourself on the docket, get ready to go. Got a brand new day planner, still snug in the wrapper, and the weekly to-do list as white as the snow. So who's good for nothing? After you've run through your personal time, you still get some whiteout, enough to erase all the previous line. It's a rather, um, shall I say, incisive uh, critique. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, like, this is portrayed as the inevitability. Begin again, begin again, wake up the lazy boyfriends, begin again, begin again, we can start at the end. It's just, it's, it's a cycle. It's this, it's satire about, you know, the cycle you get trapped in as a lazy boyfriend. And then it calls itself out. It calls this idea out. This American splendor spreads out before you, from basements to attics, garages to sheds. That ubiquitous. Who needs a vacation? Who needs a direction? Who needs motivation when you live in your head? So who good for nothing? So hard to finish, there's nothing to force. You've still got some whiteout. And all the girlfriend's buyer's remorse. Uh, I love that line. Uh, it's just, it's it's very funny in its structure and the way it's lyrically driven. It really does, even if it's not a direct correlation to what I what I was mentioning about single it's, ladies. It's, it's sort of there's like... There's a relation. It's the other side. Yeah. The other side, the other perspective. And maybe a little bit of an excuse. But what I don't want to excuse here is how droning the music actually is. But that's If impor- this wasn't a satire... It, the song would frankly just would not frankly be able fail. to yes. yeah it would just fail it's a more effective juxtaposition to me than previous cases as I said but it's it's still a little bit loose um, and again it was a choice that I think was probably only grounded in the fact that it's it's a trend it's a trend that he notices that for he perhaps is uh, noting because he may have fell, fallen into the trap at some point um, because it's the cycle that you get into I imagine as a boyfriend where you're just like it's slipping back into bachelorhood, despite the fact that you have a girlfriend, but you still are in the mindset of a bachelor, and you have the routines of a bachelor, you have the the fall, the failings of a bachelor, you know, walking around your house in sweatpants and such, and walking outside perhaps in sweatpants, which is the true marker of a person who's um, lost all self-respect. Yeah, there you go. No, uh, going to the uh, shop right, stop and shop, what have you, in sweatpants. Actually going out into public. Oh, I see. And, and well, interacting with people. Okay, so, yeah, if you walk around the block in sweatpants, that's okay. Yeah. but that, Especially early morning or late night. But that, I, have, I have a friend who would really be happy to hear that. Mm-hmm. But that all said, um, it it's, is a satire. So it does work for what it's trying to get back. It's yeah. a good joke. Yes. It's still a good joke. And many of these tracks, like, 
I think we're going to be a little bit forgiving because the satire and the irony and the joke itself is so strong. Though in the next track, we do get one of the strongest jokes on the record just because of the whole cohesive structure. Um, Track 10 is called Unpronounceable. And from a narrative standpoint, it is simply about someone being very frustrated about a message they were left where someone's name is unpronounceable, almost illegible. Well, first of all, there's the confusing rhythm nature here. I mean, it's not that it's terribly confusing, but it's definitely got this stuttered approach, which to me is so indicative of the fact that the person's name that he's left to wonder about is unpronounceable. Time stopped when you said hello. When you left, the clock began to breathe again. Now all I do is think about the puzzle that remains. And right along this is this this, this driving rhythm. One and and three and one, two, and. It's this, like, this strange little, uh... Stutter step. It's, it's like a, 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 first of all, just the idea that he would want to leave out that, that four there. You, you want to kind of, like, throw in the four, or, like, the four and, rather. But instead, there's just that little space just left in between. And that's what you're left with, with as, as for, for the duration of all these verses. And it, it kind of leaves you in a little bit of a, a confusing territory. Like, you're just wondering over something, and, and uh, you know, what, what was her name? And you're, 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 you're actually stuttering. You're doing what I'm doing right now. Just, like, yet a letter after letter because it's unpronounceable. And you have a distorted guitar, where that, that drunkish kind of guitar is back again. It's, it's lo-fi, it's out of its way. And you're taking all these elements, the bass, it, they all seem truncated. They all seem like they've been chopped up a little bit, like they're also losing their quality as you're going along. This is no more present than the dead air that comes later, where the guitar riff that's been being used throughout the entire song It seems like they're playing the song, but they're pausing unless the guitar is making noise. And it's one of the most meta parts of any song I've ever heard. And that's why this ends up being my favorite song. They went full force with the art here, but it's still not an art piece that you have to appreciate for the art. It's an art piece I appreciate for the music itself, for the song itself. I love every little aspect of this song. Well, you mean the way in which the, the music actually matches what the rhythm did? or, or in, in, in the splicing, I mean the post-production uh, editing here. For, I mean, for instance, we have this guitar solo that, that enters in earlier on, which is a very, like, a 80s, like, arena rock kind of in a way, but without the reverb. And just as, a, and as an aside here, I do want to mention that I noticed they have a tendency to avoid reverb in almost every capacity. Like, every song that they do is clean and concise, very firm cutaways and sudden transitions, and a very, very relaxed delivery. There's, a, like, no attempt to to shroud it in reverb and make it sound gra- gra- uh, grander than it is. And I really, really appreciate that. And then that's enhanced. All of those, like, firm cutaways and sudden transitions are enhanced here by taking this 80s arena rock solo and just splicing the crap out of it. And when I say splicing, I don't just mean that in a, in a musical sense. I mean that from a, a an audio workstation sense. You, you took the audio clip, you spliced it, and you set the next clip some distance away. So that way you hear the full breadth of silence that was left there and the very, very harsh decay to, to zero. Absolutely zero in the interim. And that really, really pushes this idea along of it being so unpronounceable that you're stuttering down to silence to, to make that attempt. It's beautiful. This is just brought out with the lyrics. Rewind the tape, review the blur. Never the same, but still obscure. 
Turn up the sound and hear the white noise. Zoom and enhance as if there were even a real thing. Which it isn't. Stare at the static long enough, you'll be hypnotized. Be hypnotized. It's so descriptive in the, the, the tweaky way they like to do it. It's well, still vague enough that I, I can actually see myself at the answering scene I, I effing with it. I noticed that they do hear what they also do in a lot of other work. And they have this this uh, penchant for, for reviewing and coming up with forms of imagery and analogies for the way in which the mind works, which obviously is one of the most challenging things to try to describe in, in words. I mean, it, just the idea that, well, something slipped your head or you had deja vu. How do you describe that? How do you get to the fundamentals? So he comes across, I mean, he comes up with all these different metaphors and he has to list a series of them to try to explain how it didn't work, which is why I love that. Rewind the tape, review the blur. Never the same, but still obscure. That's that's gorgeous because of course there's no tape it's just him but this is the reaction that he's having after the fact being a little bit disgusted with the way his mind works i also love that all of these lyrics give this song such a distinct and specific character that at the end of the song when he repeats the lines he's been repeating the whole song he chops it up words are missing he breaks it up it gets and, distorted and, it, but, it, uh, 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 it gives, it's so beautiful just to take that final step there. It's like tagging a joke that a comedian is saying. You know, you, yeah. you tell a joke at the beginning of your special, and then at the end of the special, you tag another joke with a reference point to something earlier. Right. This is exactly like that, and it's a great way to end the track, tagging it with that effect. I, I, I really hesitate to say this because of raving the, about the song so much, but it, to me it was only just another song that may have not been quite as innovative from the musical standpoint, not the implementation. Post-production was masterful. I wish they'd kind of used more intriguing texture with which to pursue that approach. It was a great approach, I just didn't think that the content was as strong. It made the song actually seem like it was one of the songs that dragged on uh, on this album of incredibly short songs, which means by <laughs> when I say dragged, I mean that very, very sparingly. Um, and that that's about all I'll say for it. How how can you can't be music jail one and two? Yeah, well, every single track it's impossible. It, it is impossible. But it's a great idea. Again, journal entries here. The next track, track eleven, "Hate the Villanelle," is a poem. Very very specifically, a poem. A poem actually about poetry. In fact, about the Villanelle, which is a nineteen line poetic form, consisting of five groups of five lines followed by a quatrain. You repeat lines here, there, and everywhere in a very specific order, and I'm not going to get into it. You can go on Wikipedia and see it exactly. It's fairly complicated, but it's not a, it's a, a very fixed form of poetry. Specifically, one person quoted on Wikipedia, Philip K. Jason, says that the Villanelle is often used and properly used to deal with one or another degree of obsession. And I love this little tidbit right here because I think it actually explains the song quite well. It strikes me as a kind of development from a sonnet because I find that sonnets often develop, often were born out of obsessions as well, but they were kind of like monologues in their own right. And then the, villain, the Villanelle kind of expands that into something a lot more, um, a lot more clear-cut and dry and perhaps more imminent. So in this case, don't hate the villain, hate the Villanelle 
with these picky rules and odd jigsaw rhymes, curses, these verses are my prison cell. But the funny thing That's just beautiful writing in of itself. Not just the fact that it fits the, the villanelle pattern, but the fact that this is self-referential. Well, and the fact that he's playing on something that exists in, in pop culture, this idea of don't hate the player, hate the game. These stuck-up jackasses that who think, you know, oh, I can do what I want because I'm just being me. You should hate the game in place that I'm playing. Right. Don't hate the villain, hate, hate the, the villanelle. villanelle. And you said it's don't hate the player, hate the game. Right. And yeah. it's it's, it's it's parroting that, but in a way where it's like he's more proper. He's a troublemaker with style and class. So he's a villain, <laughs> and this is a villain, and it's the villanelle. Right. It's just it's 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 the way well, it's, it's presented. That's like a, a, a triple entendre right there. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. Um, it's kind of appropriate that it was also a ballad style, a long form ballad style as well. Yeah. Also complemented by the fact that it has quite a bit more texture than some of the the recent tracks. You have a lot of uh, pops and what sounds like metal on metal, like coins dropping or something like that. That's essentially your drum box here. It's a very odd choice for a drum box, and I really appreciated it. It really is just this this backdrop that exists for him to tell his story, and it was very tasteful. And it also uh, gives this kind of like lore of mystery to it. Is it. You're supposed to like be entranced by his words, and the music supports that. I solve this puzzle but tumble through hell. These words are fractions when I need primes. Curses. These verses are my prison cell. I love that line. These words are fractions when I need primes. <laughs> Random math reference. There's a lot of school references going on here. And all said and done, when he culminates with the actual song, there's one line. My hands disappear as I wave farewell. This gentle quicksand turns into hard times. And he kind of halts with it. The music cuts out. It makes me realize the final crux of the joke that's going on here. It, it actually almost was a bridge of sorts. Like, at that moment, he, he the, slows down because he's reducing himself to, to tuplets, which are very, like, you know, it, it's kind of against the beat as it is, and the beat is already kind of ambiguous because it's just filled with pops of sorts. So it makes it very, very texture-heavy at this point, and he's matching with it. And the whole thing comes off as, oh, he was writing a school poem because he has to do it in ninth grade English. Like Bingo. you do. Bingo. And boom, that's why you're getting all the references to schoolwork. That's why that line feels so awkward. He didn't know what to do anymore it's because he's being forced to do it. It's a funny thing because he actually, I mean, this strikes me as exactly his humor style that he probably would have had as a as a rambunctious teenager, um, as the class clown, as it were. Like, well, I'm going to write a, I have to write a villanelle, huh? Well, I'll write a villanelle and villanelles. Yeah. It's a three-form joke. It is an amazing idea to have a joke on the villanelle, a joke on don't hate the player, don't hate the game, a joke on schoolwork. I mean, in one piece, that's just, that's lyrical mastery right there. Yeah, and again, it's, well, it's it's satirical mastery, frankly. It's both. You need one for the other. <laughs> yeah, you do. All right, let's go to track 12, I'm a Coward. Well, in this case, we kind of dip back to funk here. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciated this for yet another satirical mastery, uh, example of satirical mastery, and that is the approach that, lyrically, he just claimed he's a coward. I'm a coward. It's a miracle I dare breathe overpowered by the gentlest summer breeze. Even when I close my eyes, I like to think that I'm hiding. And you have the funk solo to complement this? The, 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 the instrument and the, and the groove most associated with strutting, uh, cock of the walk, um, 
sexual prowess, you know, let alone physical prowess in the broad, all of this to accompany, I am a coward. This is the sniveling weasel, essentially. The contrast speaks for itself, but I, I, I chose to speak it anyway. What I like about this is it obviously, the contrast from, from what it's about to the form and, and sound of the song is what makes the satire here. The fact that it's such a cocky song about being a terrified coward. Mm -hmm. it, could be, it could be taken two ways here. Either it's just trying to reiterate how much of a coward he is, or it could just be some, that lie that you tell that girl to get her. There's also a little, like, inner things going on here I like to appreciate. Like, we're, we're in funk territory for pretty much the duration, but it's more of, like, the relaxed variety, more of a soul variety. The bass steps forward, which very... It reaches out to like warm the entire track, but the guitar in the verse here is very stuttered in its and awkward in its own right. Um, it really contains the strut, and it, the funny thing is because it's so awkward, it's it's like it's like you're walking on those set of 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 steps, the set of stairs that that reach upward, but each step is longer than the other, so you never know exactly the right pace to take. You can't walk up at your normal pace where it's like, well, one foot on each step. Instead, it has to be like, well, two on one, one on the other, two on the next, and you're kind of like jerky as you walk. That's the way this guitar sort of approaches it, which makes sense because he wouldn't be, I mean, wouldn't a coward be like strutting awkwardly? Would he be strutting at all? It, it's, it's an interesting little like line that he walks. It, it builds for an interesting song. It has an overall easygoing vibe, very Weezer-esque, but in the Island in the Sun kind of a style, very Island Groove like we had earlier on the album, which is kind of nice towards getting towards the end of the record to reminisce and refer to something that happened earlier a bit and dabble into something without being identical to that sound. I got one other little comment to note about that that little uh, guitar strut, and that's also the tone of it. It, it com came across as just a little bit 16-bit, like like as if it were a video game strut, which also would be rather appropriate if you consider the fact that he's probably an indoor guy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the character that they're building here. It's overall a very strong song that has an, you know, a fun little character within it. I actually thought the chorus was, was pretty lovely, too. The, the melody here was, was absolutely gorgeous. It really, it really blended with the whole. It was much smoother, and I just, I just enjoyed this for music's sake. And if we're going to get a nice, relaxing song, of course, they're going to take us out of that with the next track. Track 13, Ah! Or, uh, ah, or Triple A. It's three A's. <laughs> This is the opposite of the song in the sense it's still about someone who's a coward, but this time the content makes and meets the context. They're the same. It's more frantic, and it's what? It's not about a coward. <laughs> John's shaking it's his head. It's actually the opposite. The person who sings this song is not scared. John disagrees. Then what's the Oz? The Oz are... I, I guess they're the people the around Oz him. Society the other trying people, to understand itself. The other people in this sort of horror movie that he's living in. What's behind the door? Behind the pile of future? Ah, ah. Reach inside <laughs> the wall and feel around. I think there's something there. Who's hiding underneath the blanket? Pull it off and see. Don't you think it's time that we remove the bandages? He's asking the sort of questions you don't ask during a horror movie. So you're saying he's this talking is... about he's talking about the things that you're not supposed to mention, especially if you know you're in a horror movie. So you're saying that this also, like the previous track, has context and tone flipped. Yeah, especially when you get to the pre-chorus, chorus, bridge. We're not really sure what part's what, but what's this button do? 
I wonder what's inside this ticking package that's addressed to me. How are sausages made? And what am I made of? I'm gonna find out now. Ah, ah, ah. I'm gonna find out now. Ah, ah. That bracketing Ooh, scary, of the yeah. scare with I'm gonna find out now, this is the guy that's probably gonna die first in the Jenny, <laughs> in, a, in a, a Freddy movie, a Jason movie, Nightmare on Elm Street, something like that. I'll buy it. I'm with John on this one. It does make sense, actually. <laughs> and it would add. It's a rare week. Well, it would also add an interesting dichotomy to this double song pair, making them the perfect pair. I love them together. Yeah. They work yeah. so well together. Yeah, it certainly would seem an odd time for them suddenly to abandon the satirical approach in which juxtaposition has been prevalent throughout this album. So, yeah. All right, so. Well, no, we got to take it a step further. Okay. Verses two, the second half of the verses. How's it going, baby? Tell me, is there something on your mind? Why'd you turn away? Turn your head around so I can see. Why'd you hesitate? What's that thing you were about to say? Is there something else that you haven't been telling me? That's scarier than the first verses. Yeah, because it's the woman possessed. It's the rel- no, 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 no. I, it's still a guy singing it, and frankly, this guy. No, but has- I'm saying he's singing to a, a girl yes. who is possessed. Like, or why'd no. you turn your head around that way? It, it may just be his oh. girlfriend, his significant other. It could be. He's he's he he's he's scaring me <laughs> those are the sort of conversations that the typical male doesn't usually initiate yeah I, I don't think that's a hard movie reference i mean i think that's just the life reference why do you hesitate what was the thing you were about to say no, Q, no, no, no. very weighted discussion what you do is you instead raise the volume on the video game system so that she kind of drowns it out and gets mad at you for something that's trivial i don't think we're gonna be taking life advice from john here no. um, <laughs> probably a good call so i think this is a good place to segue to our next track yeah let's go to track 14 let me tell you about my operation okay as far as music on the album goes as much as i love music jail part one and two this by far is one of the most well done musical segments on the record and my reason for it is because it's a unexpected and b something i've not heard them do a lot I'll only make one uh, retort to that, and that is simply the fact that as intricate as this may be from a big band and swing perspective, because that's mostly what we get here, and it's a giant jam in that regard, uh, absolutely a, a, a hoot from front to back. It's still, that to me is not so, so unexpected, apart from its experience, which frankly I, I think that they could pull just from about any genre at this point and try and make it their own, but it's that Music Jail was an exploration of multiple genres and constantly shifting your expectation from genre to genre to form to form to verse to chorus in A and B. This was a little bit more straightforward. Like, tracks like this have been made. They do it well, no argument there, but I, I basically know what I'm getting the second uh, those those brassy instruments roll in. Fair enough. I still enjoyed the hell out of it. So did I. So um, <laughs> I've been quiet. There we are. First of all, one note about the beginning, because actually this is one of the most unexpected elements. Uh, it begins with a drum roll. Yeah. And the drum roll is that of what you would get at the very beginning of like a 30s era big band and swing thing. But an effect is laid on it that is quite interesting. It's this very phasing, like high gain effect. This this filter that shrouds the drum roll and makes it, makes it sound a little bit uh, digitized, a little bit um, phased out and or lost in translation. And that lasts for quite a long time. It's a very overly dramatic intro. Still really appreciated that. Uh, just, again, the fusion of, you know, a 1930s sound with a modern approach. And it's overall, the theme of the track is definitely this kind of happy, sad mix. Sound-wise, music-wise, really happy. Upbeat, danceable, lyrically, not so much. Well, 
Sort of. He's <laughs> not. He's not sad. It's kind of effed up what's going on here. Well, let's go to the chorus. <laughs> oh, let me tell you about my operations. Doctors removed your memory. Oh, it's good news. It's just a quick procedure. Finding happiness through surgery. That's really weird it's and bleak. messed up. Not. I it's won't bleak. say bleak. I say dystopian. It's not of the norm. This is the sort of thing that novels have been written of because people can go in there and change their mind and dump Total, their Isn't that all that, that Total Recall is about? From yeah, Dr. and that's not a very good movie, but yeah. it's so upbeat. He's so he's so slick as he's singing. He's almost greasy. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. The persona is there to fit this song, but it's just a little tilted. Um, shall I just propose that this is a lobotomy? Maybe. Oh, yeah, it could be. Maybe. I mean, doctors removed your memory. Oh, it's good news. It's just a quick procedure. Find happiness through surgery, which is, of course, the big advertisement in lobotomies as back in the 1950s and 60s when this was a pretty common practice in mental institutions is that if you were a little bit too screwed up to, you know, let's say be a, a functional member of society, then, well, you should be lobotomized because it'll, it'll withdraw those inhibitions and leave you in a very just passive, passive mood. in ethereal state. What I also really like, though, about this musically is that, as we were talking about the genre and how they, they can probably attempt anything and make it their own, that's what I really like. This doesn't feel like them playing big band. It feels like they are big band. They embrace the genre completely. There's no attempting. They are a big band-style yeah, band for this song. Yeah. And I think that's phenomenal, too. It really immerses you in it. And then there's, of course, there's a little split there that, of course, I, I wouldn't say that they would just, like, go straight to lobotomy. I think lobotomy is the first place that your mind goes. But, of course, that's, like, uh, the way we kind of find the middle ground, I think, as people who want to try to, like, put out certain memories and there's certainly been a lot of, like, hints at regret over the course of this album or things in which he perhaps doesn't want to focus on, things in which, you know, a little bit scarred by, but he always has a good sense of humor on. And that of his course, well, just, you know, numb it out. Just, just, if the doctors remove your memory, find happiness through surgery. He's making a medical reference for something that I think a lot of people do, which is just, well, you know, just numb it out. Just suppress it, whether that's through drugs, whether through anything else. Um... I don't know if that's a real far way to go for this track. It just seems like the kind of, <laughs> even the little inserts, très bon, très bon, very good, very good. <laughs> yeah. Well, if track 14 is the surgery, is the, the, the moment at which he takes what his plans were in a race. A race was sort of a, a thematic overture for the, for the album itself. It's trying to get rid of this. Track 14, let me tell you about my operation. This is where he gets rid of it. Glean, track 15, the, the final track. track. The title track, yet the final track, yet no vocals. The only instrumental track. It's, it's that happy moment after the lobotomy. It's bliss. It's a, it it's a nicely intricate musical piece, it's like but it's bliss. 1632-bit bliss. I and mean, it's muted, too, like almost as if... Well, that's where I got the 1630. Like, you know, as sound would be played, let's say, through uh, a Super Nintendo or, yeah. or an N64, perhaps. Um, well, like, will I go as far as N60? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then yeah, yeah. Then it was still a, a little bit. That was 32-bit, I think. In but which case, we're N64? still kind of. N64. It was 64-bit. That's where the 64 comes from. Yeah. Oh, I'm a little ashamed to know both of you. Shut up. But but the point was, it was a <laughs> computerized uh, MIDI sound, which is what this feels like, and that mutedness kind of adds to John's point, like. 
if you were kind of in this lobotomized haze, things would feel fuzzy and it's muted. It's true when you get carefree sounds like xylophones and things of that nature. I mean, they step through here pretty strongly. Uh, also, in, in this kind of like bossa nova rhythm, which also is very like uh, beachside, you know, well, obviously we could all hope to spend the rest of our life in Brazil. Yeah, that would yeah. not be so bad for anybody. That would be so bad. And all of a sudden done, it does a great job of really cementing the theme, the story arc that's going on here for me. To go from the the introduction of kind of like a flashback with a race to, to, to say, here it is. Here's what's going to happen on the course of this album. But from track two onward, it really is sort of the evolution of an individual, sometimes within the context of relationships, sometimes without. Just musically, they decide to just be they might be giants and go across the board to be kind of scattered brains about it. Well, I guess then I'll take us into our wrap-up. Uh, it's interesting because while I said earlier that they are by no stretch pretentious people, I mean everything that they do is very, very humble. They have simple ideas and they say them with, with, with conviction but also with good humor. There's also... <laughs> I, sometimes I, I want to almost say that they sh they have the right to be pretentious at times because they make such keen insights. They make such keen points, even if they are just, you know, the, the, the day by day observations as a comedian would have. They make that through music probably more effectively than I find in most music out there. Like, for instance, this is music with a comedy twist. And I think it's, that's really elemental in this discussion today because we found ourselves laughing so much, um, as opposed to comedy music. Like We're, The Lonely Island. Like The Lonely really Island. Really. First and foremost, they're really going for comedy. They're really doing a parody of different styles of music. But when I see they might be giants pursuing something, it's not because I don't think they like the idea. I think it's very, very rare that they'll choose something purely to fit the joke. I think mostly it's this, this perfect marriage of of a, a style with the point that they need to make. Which is why there were really only a couple moments on this album that I felt like it was a little bit of a cop-out. Um, that was in the case of track 9, All the Lazy Boyfriends. I mean, in that particular case, I thought there was really no... It didn't feel like their style. It didn't feel like the kind of pop that they would be keen on. But everything else in this album is just so them in every regard. I mean, really, I think that was the only track that I really glossed over. Maybe other things, it was really more just like a, a taste variance, or I would feel like it went on a little too long, which, by the way, means absolutely nothing because all these songs are so short and such, you know, journal entries, again, as I've put it. It's, it's again, concise statements. I, it, that's a really tough thing to rate, but that doesn't, like, detract from the fact that it's still great music. You can, as we've often said you can really make great musical strides in the con confines of, of brevity, of, of a short track that knows all its parts and says all it needs to say. They do that almost throughout. I think that's... I, this obviously puts it above four territory, and when you consider their last album, Nanobots, which was a monster of 25 albums... Um, despite the fact that it even had a, a certain section, I recall, toward like the latter teens or something like that, where it was just like five to, to ten second clips of brief little songs. One of them was called There, you yeah. know, amongst others. Some were six seconds. 
we were confused about how to rate that at the time. And granted, that it was only episode thirty-eight, and we were confused how to rate a lot of things. We were kind of making it up as we as we went along. But you know, as we amount some might now, say we still are. Yeah, well, yeah. But see, now we have our, our our own numbers to kind of like stack up against, which yeah. makes it a lot harder. But also, is the it's the place we brought ourselves to, and to challenge ourselves and consider where do things fall in the grand scheme of things. So let me just look at the elements here. Musically, I think, frankly, they're better than a lot of other people out there. I said in my intro, they have the practice now that stands the test of time, and it, it, it outshines so many other bands um, just in execution. I think that they have mastered their form. How, how couldn't they master their form after 17 albums? Um, in terms of reaching out and, and the, the, the complexity within, they've even shown they can do that. It actually almost puts my earlier point uh, to shame to say that, well, we're not constantly blown away. When I think about it, we're not really blown away that much these days. We get a lot of music that's just par for the course, tried and true. By all rights, a, a band that has released 17 albums should probably, as, as at least our experience would determine, have phoned it in by now and have phoned it in long ago, and it would be a miracle they're still around. Indeed, in, in the case of these guys, they just keep getting better. They are the, the examples uh, to that effect of a band that, like, you know, we tell our children, if you try again and again and again, you will consistently get better, and there will never be a decline. So far, they're proving that rule, not disproving it. I really, really appreciate that. It's really just... I guess the fact that I'm not blown away in a long-form respect. And that's the only reason I'm, like, not hinting toward a five. And also the fact that there's not a cohesive idea throughout the album. I don't think that there's a, a locking mechanism for this. Um, even with the ethereal title, Glean, I, I, I will actually interject my monologue to ask you whether you guys find a cohesive idea in this. Let me pose that question to you right now. Uh, sort of. I don't think it's as cohesive as other strong themes or narrative arcs we've had, but there's definitely connect connections throughout. I could go into it, but it'd be long-winded, and I'd have to make some metaphors that may not actually fit within it. All right, then I'll withdraw and just say that, that for the most part, they really do excel at the one-shots. And that's really what their albums are, in, in most sense, a, a, a kind of compilation that still has a musical flow um, and a musical arc, I, and, and also surprises you every step of the way. That's their form, and I really can't judge them outside of that. In that manner, they succeed every step of the way with only a few faults. I, I, I guess I'm probably giving this, I think the same as last. I think it hits an, uh, it's all the same notes, 4.5, just as their last album did. Um, it has the same really, really high points, just as I experienced in Music is uh, music Jail, parts one and two, and we did the last time with uh, Darlings in Lumberland. There's that one song that you hone into, but also several others that come really, really close and are extremely memorable, and very little of it comes across as filler. Upper echelon material is, is there, but the upper, upper echelon material is arguable. I, I feel like that is the challenge indicative of a longer form work. All right, I'll go next. Um, I don't want to get long-winded on this, honestly, because we'll all just be repeating ourselves. We were pretty clear and concise in the review, so I'll leave it at this. I enjoyed this album more than Nanobots, period. That's it. Um, Nanobots, there were a few songs I didn't love. 
even though you guys loved, we're head over heels for this song, I still don't really like Replicant. I don't. It's not a bad song. It just, for whatever reason, didn't hit the notes with me. So I don't like that song. And there were a handful of others I did not like. Not because they're bad songs, as we said. They are talent. They didn't resonate. They just didn't resonate. And that's the main thing also with my argument, is that a lot of their songs, whether in that album or this album, are ditties. They said that from the outset, and, you know, you have to take that in stride. So, for me, this album, I just feel, is better overall. It's a solid piece of work. They continue to amaze and and, and mystify me in the way that They Might Be Giants always has. Um, so, I'm not going to go at length about it. Because I think it's better, but again, Steve's right. It's still not five territory yet. That's not saying it's not good. It's just saying it's not five territory. But I can't rate it lower than Nanobots or even the same because I do think this is a better record. So for me, it's a 4.6. Right above the 4.5 because... I just, I really dig this record, and I think they're making their slow climb to that perfect paradigm shift that they will, as long as they continue to play and grow, will get to that ultimate moment. Okay. Getting my ducks in a row here. This, it's it's a little unfair to make the comparison to Nanobots, other than the fact that, yeah, it's the same band. Nanobots was less cohesive, and frankly, the big difference was I did not like everything on Nanobots right away. If I were to go straight up from there, it's going to be a higher, a higher rated record just because of that. Every song here I love right away, just just connected with it. Even the ones like like, like boyfriend songs, like the kind of stuff that feels a little bit too safe. Well, frankly, the joke is great for it. The joke is great for them to have all the lazy boyfriends be that really, like, pantheon prototypical pop track. A lot of peas right there. Alliteration. It's really damn good. All said and done. It's not quite as good as something like, well, to compare it to stuff that we've already reviewed this year. It's not as good as Modest Mouse. I really don't think it is. I think Modest Mouse is more experimental. But here, the theme in the arc, I believe, is a little bit stronger. The joke is just a little bit stronger going into it. What they're trying to say, they say so very well. Hate the Villanelle. That's a threefold joke that was I got right away. As soon as I looked up what a Villanelle was, read that little extra quote on Wikipedia, I got that joke. I got the other joke. I got the third joke. One song, three jokes, beautiful. For that, I am going to raise them up. They're, they're 4.7. They're really, really good. There's a lot of words here I love. There's a lot of snippets. The vocals are just excellent through and through. Yeah, some parts were a little bit phoned in, a little bit musically safe. But for them, musically safe, it's like leaps and abounds other people. Yeah, as, as Steve put it once or twice during the podcast, this is just a regular song every once in a while. That's okay to have a regular song on an album that's really just, just, just trying to push the boundaries everywhere they can. All right. All right. I mean, All right. we'll average out to me, which is I'm gonna fine. Act. I'm okay with that. I'm going to even say, yeah, what I said last. Yeah, no, I'm sticking with 4.5, but I think uh, that's a good closer. The same um, 
same closer I used for a pretty recent album, um, Hand Cannot Erase by, right. I, I believe I used the words, it was fringe excellent, but it's definitely great. I think that's, that's the good justification for my 4.5. That makes perfect sense. Um, so I briefly want to chat about, before we, we wrap up today's show, so <laughs> first I'm admitting something pretty big, but I actually would defend it if we ever reviewed it, which I haven't decided if we will. I've been listening to Taylor Swift's newest record, which I actually think isn't terrible. And there are a lot of reasons why. Um, besides the creation process of the record, the fact that she plays her own instruments, the fact that she can really sing. Um, I, I didn't did... expect that it would be terrible. Right. I never would have made that. Uh, Go figure. She's a musician. Um, yeah. A pop musician. But her newest single, her Bad Blood, too. rumors abound that it's actually targeted at another pop star. That pop star is Katy Perry, who she used to be very close with. Whether it's true or not, who knows. But the, the idea is that this song lyrically is targeting her, uh, uh, targeting Katy Perry. She doesn't say as much in the song, but it made me think. Um, is it a faux pas to attack another musician? Now, I think personally, this is my two cents, if it's, if by name you're attacking somebody, I think it's, it's probably not great. You know, you probably can be bigger than that. Being cryptic can also be as bad, but also music is a way to vent, move on, and, and get through what you're feeling. And so if you're angry at someone, you write a song about being angry at them to vent it and get it out, which is not unreasonable. Um, but I wanted to pose that to you guys. Do you think, it, and it doesn't have to be black or white, but do you think it's wrong to do that or right to do it, or are you somewhere in the middle? Well, John had mentioned this earlier, and it's a good point, that I think that the, the trend of doing so, and I hate that I have to discuss it as a trend, is probably been initiated by uh, the hip-hop genre. It's common within it. It's common for these sort of, like, scathing retorts to be uh, posed at the, like, inner, you know, gang warfare that existed. Obviously, what it was most publicized was the more literal gang warfare, warfare between, you know, um, Tupac and, and Biggie Smalls, which right. were actually once friends, and then uh, eventually they had a falling out. Although it is claimed in the aftermath that they were still on fairly good terms. Nevertheless, people will probably wonder uh, from till the dying day as to whether, you know, one was responsible for the other. Or if not, for instance, the one directly, uh, members of their extended circle. And there were, in those cases, several uh, examples of what you're describing. Um, I believe the one I can recall was... I believe it was on both sides, but the one I can recall was Biggie Smalls, who made a, a comment at, at Tupac. And now, come to think of it, it was definitely um, Tupac as well. Within one of his songs, he made a little uh, jab at, at uh, Smalls' weight uh, just for the hell of it. And, of course, made all of the hotshot claims that, well, you know, you couldn't best me in a rap battle and all such. It, it just got a little tiresome. After, I do find that the more and more this persists, it just takes you away from music. And back then, it was all about attitude and machismo, and, and half of that is, it, that's what sold the majority of those albums. Um, it's not all of it, but it was an element. So I'm sure it probably worked from a marketing standpoint, it probably worked from a hype standpoint, because then you're actually exciting people on, well, what did he say now? Sometimes this even happens outside of music, and that's even more uh, despicable in, 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 
my in my view, and that would just be like YouTube videos released by an artist. No music, no music present whatsoever. It's literally just to call someone else out. Um, this I, I remember this actually went on between. This is a bizarre reference here, but it went on between Soldier Boy and Ice T. I remember. And this that. happened yeah, just last too. year, and it, it 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 struck me on both sides as so unprofessional. Um, the fact that they would even give each other the time. That isn't a hundred percent. And my here's here's where I'm gonna start attacking it. I mean, it's about as important, especially nowadays, as a WWE storyline. <laughs> it's obviously manufactured in many instances. But what it does, and this is both a negative but I feel more positive, is it creates a story for the fans to latch onto. It creates drama. Now, it's manufactured in some cases, even when it's not manufactured, it's when it's natural drama between two people, you know, hating one another. It excites the fans and adds to their experience with the music itself. That can't hurt in the long haul. In the short haul, when they're maybe talk, hearing people talking about busting a cap in somebody's ass, yes, one group may be advocating violence. Both of them may be. And it may end up leading it into violence, which that is deplorable. But it further interacts individuals into the music. And that's something we here at Crash Chords advocate very, very much so. We like people to really delve into their music. If there's history, if there's backstory, that cannot do anything but really help in the long run. Well, it also adds a personal nature to the music. I mean, take, for example, if the song Bad Blood by Taylor Swift is directed at Katy Perry... She had hurt feelings, and so she's venting in a way that's healthy for her, besides physical violence, which we said earlier is deplorable. You know, it's this idea of doing something emotional musically. You so mean you like don't the punch a pillow someone. syndrome, essentially? Uh, sort of, yeah, but, but even less so because you're not hurting yourself, even. You're just venting. It's like complaining to somebody, chewing someone's ear off, you know, kind of a thing, like the idea that you let it out somehow. Well, see, that brings me to something also we earlier mentioned. I mean, obviously, if you take that approach, and it's not that I'm, you know, not saying, well, you can vent. Obviously, music is, is a lot about venting. I think half the music, the, probably half of the tracks we've run across is about somebody getting something off their chest, whatever it is. Um, but especially if it's about something specific, someone specific, I feel like it is it is the job of an artist to use their artistry to provide some concealment and some, some anonymity some anonymity exactly for the other person it's just what else do you hope to gain there because obviously if you create a divide in the community where you rally your fans over to your over your side and and, and you might also push lose fans. you might also lose fans and push them over to their side not that like uh, do you really want to create a line the point yeah. is like whether you gain or whether you lose all you're doing is you're just you're hiking up the gossip to me that's a separate entity than the music um, and that's that's the least professional thing to do, since your goal obviously is to just well <laughs> sell music. And obviously, if that affects you negatively in from a uh, from a, a standpoint of bitterness or aggravation, then that's not going to help your case. But musicians write from personal experience. I mean, that might be the the crux of what I believe you should sure, be able well, to. S I advocate that though, but like from personal experience, you know. If the right person knows the truth, then they'll be able to read into it. But beyond that, it, you could you could easily write an obscure track with obscure lyrics, and then whatever gossip is is left to 
is left to the ether is all hearsay. But sometimes it has to be that concrete. It really does. Why? Give me one good reason. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I see where Steve's coming from. <laughs> I think it makes sense For also. For the record, John made an obscene gesture at me. <laughs> <laughs> and that is on air. <laughs> the, the thing is... I think at the at the goal of this, at the goal, at the base of this, it's about doing what's best for you personally as an artist. And you don't want to defame someone because also you don't want to get into the, the area of defamation of character or any legal issues either. And a song is a documented thing that can be used as evidence. But the, the, the lighter side of it is if you want to attack someone without saying their name, for example, Taylor Swift wrote a song that's fairly straightforward about this bad blood being between two people and someone betraying their trust without mentioning names, and then created a music video that was spoofing an action movie with ha having almost every other pop or mainstream female singer in the video except for the person we mentioned she's possibly attacking. Mm. That's a pretty strong statement, inviting Haley Williams of... of of um, Paramore. Paramore, Mershka Hargitay from SVU, like all of these pop and action and important women in media, but leaving out someone who is arguably also a very important woman in media, that says something. And so I think that was a way to go about it, is to just build yourself up instead of knocking someone else down. Yeah, I think the best way to go about it is is reactionary art. And that's from the artistic movement perspective. It's like, well, th the same a logic that you would apply to someone who wronged you in a way, and people always respond, well, you know what the best revenge is? Live well. <laughs> Live well and die hard. <laughs> Live well and die hard. And that's the, the absolute best approach. And from an artist's perspective, that means go balls to the wall with your art and be the best damn artist you can be until it becomes, well the fans choice as to whether they prefer your content or not because that's obviously what you'd choose you'd rather be respected by or off of yeah that's i think a very fair point actually john do you have any any follow-up comments to this i still think that it's perfectly allowable <laughs> so well, I'm not changing know, my mind. I have no problem with it. When it comes right down to it, I have no problem if one person wants to call up another person in some sort of media, in music, in on television, in the news, something like that. As long as they aren't just talking out of their ass. As long as it's it's something within their field of knowledge. You believe if it's one something... musician calling out another musician because of their music or because they're rude to them or within if they're within the same circles. I mean, having an artist, a painter, or something like that calling out a senator or something like that for like asinine reasons. That's not cool. You, you you can't be using your media for something like that. But if you have legitimate grievances, either personal or public. I'm okay with it. I really am. You know, the funny thing is actually in the in 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 the um, in the arena of politics, I'm more defending of it because that's the job of of a politician, isn't it? To to do everything he can to get in power. That his uh, that his you know that people want him to get into power. They're going to elect him. It's like, well, you might as well use your lobbying money to go balls to the wall. You could you can write from dusk till dawn about how about how offensive it is, but at the end of the day, it's like. I find it is a more cutthroat business. It's going to be you're going to be ruling the nation. When it comes to art, I find there I it, it seems so less pivotal to me, like to engage in such such frivolity. Uh, then again, I also like a lot of political music. 
which calls out said individuals and things like that with their public grievances wow. and things like that. I'll meet you, I think I'll that meet might you be... halfway on one earlier point, and that is the staging thing. I do think a lot of it is staged, and in that case, it's like, well, if it isn't real anyway, then we're just buying into it. And at that point, it, it, it's ridiculous even to g engage in the discussion of is it, if it, is it disreputable or is it, is it okay? Like, who cares? It's not real. <laughs> and people find themselves arguing about absolutely nothing anyway. So... You know, who knows? I don't even know the truth with the Tupac Biggie Smalls event. I That very well could have been the same exact thing. No one knows. As long as your art is honest, I think this is the big, big crux. As long as your art is honest, I don't really care. I may think it's great. I may think it's terrible. But it's still in the realm of art if you're truly being honest to yourself. I think if it divides people more than they are already divided <laughs> in this very divided world, then I... I, I I don't think it's that great. Which brings me back to a very interesting reference, uh, episode 101, when we reviewed Jack White's um, Lazaretto and his whole song entitled Entitlement. Yeah. Like, we're all entitled to every... That was a very binding track to me, and that's the kind of track that serves to bring people from all sides together. All right. I mean, well, I, it may seem like a strange segue, but I'm just saying, no, like, it's a binding song. It brings people together and tells you not to really just, like, hate the other side because everyone has their own personal set of grievances and their own personal problems. It invites empathy, and I think that's the best kind of art. Okay. I think from here is a good place to uh, wrap up, start wrapping up this week's episode. Let's, uh, let's hear what the fans have to say, since we actually have a fan comment no on the site. Spam mail today. Yep. Fan, 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 fan. Wait, are, uh, we yeah, you can't have, do spam, we, spam. You have to do, I have to do the fan song. To change the song, yeah. Can't, fan. Sorry, that's copy. The previous one is copyrighted. You can't uh, sing the same I'll melody. write one for next week. Thank right. you. No, you won't. No, I won't. I'm challenging him. Hey guys, I recently found out about your podcast from Shave of the Dark Lord, reference from episode 115, and I've been working my way through your backlog, loving the analysis and reviews that you guys have been doing. Keep up the wonderful work. I also come bearing a suggestion, a challenge, a record that currently is sitting as my favorite of 2015 thus far, tall order. I am absolutely biased, he admits, but I would love to hear your thoughts on the album. We Cool by Jeff Rosenstock, and that is the name of the album. We Cool? Question mark. What's even better, it's available for free at quote-unquote records. I hope you guys check it out. That'd be super rad. And that is from Star F. Um, who has since reached out on the Facebook page, expressed specific interest in the um, the episode we did with the Wall Street players, um, that was Hide the Kitchen Knives. Episode 29. Not episode 2. No. That, well, episode two, we also talking, had yeah, uh, well, Wall Street players. But, we have to, the, the, you have to, you have to speak. But specific. The, the, specifically, the album "Hide the Kitchen Knives." So I gave him that link on Facebook, and he thus had friended me on Facebook. So we are in contact. But yes, uh, Star of Ten, thank you for reaching out. We will definitely take on that album in the month of June. We are in contact. Your check is in the mail. Your check is in the mail. Yeah. Thanks. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Whispering on a microphone is silly. Um, <laughs> it is when you lean forward to whisper. Fair point. Um, of course, as I mentioned in previous weeks, our guest for this month is going to be the Andy Heidel of Waystation fame. He is the owner and proprietor, uh, proprietor of uh, the Waystation. He is bringing us an album by Bell and Sebastian, who I've not actually listened to in a very long time. Me neither. They have a brand new record called Girls in Peacetime Want to Dance. And that will be the record he is bringing us next week. We are also going to chat with him about 
his decision to turn a bar that was pretty much just a nerd bar into an actual music venue that features tons of prominent local artists. Let's be this, honest. It's a music nerd bar. Well, yes. Or a, a musical bar with nerds or... A musical bar that appeals to nerds. Or a nerd bar that appe- appeals to musicians. Neighborhood nerds, though. They're locals. Or, or just both of both worlds. Best of both worlds. I like drinking there. In any case, I'm excited for this for two reasons. Um, Bell and Sebastian has been in my music library probably ever since 2003. The days in which I was, I'm going to say this on air, downloading music via Kaza. Wow. Yeah. Song that was song. before LimeWire, which was before uh, the advent of widespread popularity of Torrents, that is, yeah. which replaced all of them. But that would, in those days when it was under a dial-up connection, you needed a dedicated, uh, a dedicated outlet. I um, love getting those 98% done songs that are missing the first five seconds so you can't actually play it. Yeah. But the thing is, back then, I had all the music just because I knew a lot of people who were into Bell and Sebastian, and I dabbled and it was interesting but I can't recall a lot of it and I never really looked at it on an album scale despite having a, a, a quite hefty amount of it in my library so this is going to be interesting for that reason second reason as you said he's an owner and proprietor we will finally be getting the other side of the coin not the artist's perspective but the the label essentially well not the label but the venue well, and that's I'm... he's all business well, that's the interesting thing. But he's also a fan of music. And the thing is, he's actually been wronged by bands, bands who I will not mention by name, but who have bailed on slots, who he's banned from playing at the bar because you don't bail on a spot. He's booked you for something. And so it'll be interesting to get the business side of that and what happens in those cases and why and how he's kind of grown this business around not just being nerdy and having a TARDIS in his bar, but also being a great music venue. Business sometimes, real, actually probably almost all the time, makes music in the end. Yeah. So, yeah. This could be interesting. It will be interesting. So tune in for that next week, guys. Um, and uh, by then I will also be a married man. So until then, remember, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.